Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm Velo News Managing Editor Chris Case, joined as always by the lovely, talented Coach Trevor Connor. Today, we're taking on a controversial subject, nutrition. Why is it so controversial? Because it is just so very personal. There's a lot of opinions on the subject, a lot of heated debate. There's even the occasional mudslinging around the subject. Everyone seems to have a strong opinion about what's healthy. We've had a few prominent guests on the podcast, and they've given their take, but thus far, Trevor has strayed away from it, and you've noticed. Several of you out there have asked Trevor to give his take on nutrition. So after much begging and pleading on my part, and knowing that there will be some angry listeners out there, some few, a few strongly worded emails, I've convinced Trevor to give his honest opinion on nutrition. Not going to lie, it was pretty fun trying to get him to come on here and do this, and I like to see Trevor squirm. Today we'll discuss what Trevor thinks is healthy and what isn't. We'll talk about what foods to eat, we'll talk about the question of wheat, nutrient density, and Trevor really wants to correct a few impressions he may have given on the past about sugar. As many listeners out there might know, Trevor has a small fetish for Swedish fish, and we'll get into that. Our format will be a little different today. As well as being my co-host, Trevor is going to be the guest of honor. He just wants all of you to keep in mind that he'll be sharing his beliefs and opinions. The hope being that over the course of the podcast, you'll come to see them as highly educated opinions, but opinions nonetheless. With that, let's dive into the snake pit. Let's make a few of you angry. And of course, let's make you fast. Hey, Trevor, I heard you ride a bike. Is that true? Uh, sometimes, maybe. Do you ever go for runs? Uh, yes, and they are painfully slow. I bet they are. I, I can only imagine. You ever swim? No. No, I actually did a triathlon a few years ago and discovered I was faster walking along the bottom oh, of the pool than swimming. What about sinking? Do you, do you ever sink? Well, that was part of walking along <laughs> the bottom of the pool now, wasn't it? There you go. Hey, well, it doesn't matter whether you're a runner, a cyclist, a swimmer, a triathlete. You want to head over to Health IQ's website. They're a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like you. They're able to give us favorable quotes on life insurance, and they have a special website just for Fast Talk listeners. That's www.fastdoc.com healthiq.com slash fast talk. While you're over there, you can submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or MapMyRun account, or any other proof you have that you are indeed a regular cyclist, runner, or fit person, and you'll get a better quote. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, except I think if I put my runs or my swims up there, they're going to be like, this guy's on his deathbed. <laughs> oh boy. We're not giving well, him insurance. Just, just put the cycling results up there. <laughs> that I can do. So Trevor, it's taken a while for us to get to this point where you've wanted to discuss diet, nutrition. Why has it taken so long and what's motivated you to get to this point now? 
Yeah, I have actually avoided this like the plague, and, and I didn't get a ton of sleep last night knowing that we were going to record this one today because I still feel like I should be avoiding this and certainly not looking forward to, to probably a bunch of responses that we're going to get or poor Spencer's going to get through the, the email. But what the hell, let's go into this. What convinced me was we did an episode a while back where we talked about sports nutrition products. I know a lot of people really enjoyed that one where we dumped a bunch of gels and drink mixes on, on a table, and I was quite grouchy and uh, uh, gave my opinion on a few of them. And that might be why we don't have any advertising on this episode possibly <laughs> right now. But that's fine. We're going to give you our honest opinion. However, I got a bunch of people emailing me after that episode saying, hey, that's great. I, I love sugar, and you're telling me sugar is good for me. And I had to kind of go, no, that's not what I not meant. Not quite, not quite. So I feel like... I need to do an episode where first I say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that, and I'll explain what I meant. And then just, we, we've had listeners who have heard me say on our nutri- episodes where we've covered nutrition that I don't want to give my bias. They, they've emailed us and said, well, why? We actually want to hear your opinion. And I think moving ahead, if we're going to do anything on nutrition and I'm going to talk about nutrition, it's important you know my background because I do have a lot of background and I, I wear multiple hats. I do also have a job in the nutrition world that you know where I'm coming from. So tell us a little bit more about this sugar controversy. Well, the sugar controversy was me not explaining myself very well, but it certainly leads into a sugar controversy. So just to make this clear, I, I did talk about sugar and I, I talked about my love of Swedish fish, uh, which I do race with. And what I said in that podcast is that a lot of these products, the, these gels, the, these uh, blocks, those sorts of things are just candy with better marketing. Uh, and I will stand by that. And I will say when you are out racing, when you are training really hard, you need those simple sugars. But want to make this clear that that is a performance ride thing. Don't misconstrue that as I am saying sugar is healthy for you. And how your body processes it when you are training is very different from how your body processes it when you are sedentary, when you are sitting around. And outside of your ride, sugar is very bad for you. And just to emphasize this, I actually wrote an article on sugar or a couple studies on sugar uh, back in the summer where they actually linked sweetened drink consumption, so your juices, and no, these these fruit juices and concentrated drinks you have in the morning, they, they aren't very different from drinking Coca-Cola with breakfast. Sorry about that, but kind of the case. So they were looking at pop. They were looking at orange juice, apple juice, that sort of thing, and found a very strong association between drinking those beverages, so getting a lot of simple sugars, and dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So that one study found that association. The other study looked at brain aging, so shrinking of the brain, and found that um, higher sugar consumption was associated with more rapid brain aging. These are not good things. Another fascinating, and look, I'm not a conspiracy theory person at all, but an absolutely fascinating study that came out about a year ago uh, that was published in JAMA, which is a a highly respected peer-reviewed journal. These researchers went through the communications of the Sugar Research Foundation, which is basically the, uh, the sugar industry. The lobbying industry, yeah, right. Lo- sugar lobby. 
and they went through the communications back in the, the 60s and 70s because there was a lot of research coming out in the 50s showing a high cor- uh, association between sugar and heart disease. And so I'm going to read for you just a couple quick lines out of the abstract. It said, we examined Sugar Research Foundation, SRF, internal documents, historical reports, and statements relevant to early debates about the dietary causes of uh, CHD, which is heart disease. Um, and assembled findings chronologically into a narrative case study. They, they go on to talk about research that they funded that tried to link fat to heart disease. Said the SRF's funding and role was not disclosed. However, together with recent analysis of sugar industry documents, our findings suggest the industry sponsored a research program in the 1960s and 1970s that successfully cast doubt about the hazards of sucrose while promoting fat as the dietary culprit in heart disease. The person who led these studies was later hired to come up with the original dietary guidelines in the 1980s, the guidelines that said, fat is bad for you, high-carbohydrate diets. So though you might not believe in conspiracies, this involves politics, money, large industry, and and the conclusion is the, the message was not the correct message. No. And there is a lot of research coming out now showing high correlations between sugar consumption and heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, cancer. Sugar is not good for us. When you're out riding your bike, great for performance. As a dietary lifestyle, I'm sorry. And look, I'm, I'm a sugar fanatic. I love my Swedish fish. I just eat them on a ride. It is not good for you. Yeah, this is not Trevor's attempt to give you free license to eat Swedish fish fish with every meal or cake or cookies or anything like that. It's a performance-oriented, simple sugar consumption while riding, while training. Yeah, and sorry to all those who, who, who are loving me because I gave you – made, made it sound like this was, this was healthy for you. So there's my disclaimer. I apologize. Let's talk about nutrition. So let's jump into that. Another controversial subject, which is nutrition. You have a background in the paleo diet with a lot of misconceptions surrounding that particular diet. Tell us a little bit about your background, your thesis, the study of why you have this bias so that we can later talk about performance and nutrition on the bike. Yeah, so I've been studying nutrition for a long time, and I probably had about 10 years of studying traditional sports nutrition. And then when I did my master's in my late 30s, as I I felt I was finishing up my cycling career, I took a class with Dr. Lauren Cordain, who is the originator of the paleo diet. And I actually really didn't know anything about it at the time. And so sat in this class, uh, I'd like to say with an open mind, but the truth was I, I sat there and just fumed thought this guy is full of it because he was contradicting a lot of what I had learned over the last 10 years. So I was just basically angry with the class. I don't think your reaction is much different from a lot of people who first approach the paleo diet. Absolutely. And this is, you know, this is one of the reasons I have avoided giving my my take on uh, nutrition because I am right now, there are many controversies in nutrition but I would say that one of the biggest ones right now is the paleo diet. And I don't want to, I kind of want to keep that fight separate from this. But like I said, if I'm going to talk about nutrition, you, you need to know my bias. And I'll give you, and right now I'm explaining why I have this bias. 
So after I finished the, the class, I, I was so angry about the class. I took it in the spring. I spent the summer trying to prove them wrong. <laughs> so as I was trying to prove them wrong, I was reading the research uh, about these various topics. And, and as I would go through the research, I'd go, well, actually, that kind of makes sense. I can't really find a hole there. So I'd look for another potential hole and I'd read the research and go, well, that kind of makes sense there as well. Well, I'm doing all this, I, I wasn't even really aware of it, but I was slowly actually modifying my diet as I, I went, well, that makes sense. So let's modify my diet. And did that all through the summer and the fall to where by New Year's, I was pretty much on the paleo diet. I was 38 at the time. I, I had accepted that I'm back in school and I have a coaching business. There's no way I can train at the level I used to be able to train at. And I was having problems in my last year's when I was racing full-time where I was getting sick a lot. And I, you know, I'd probably get sick six, seven times a year. And these bugs would last several weeks. So it, it was really hurting my performance. Well, all of a sudden, I'm not getting sick anymore. I'm able to train just as hard as I used to train, even though I'm working 60-plus hours a week. And I'm recovering better. So I started ramping up my training. And that year, Canadian Nationals was actually on my birthday. So the day I turned 39 at Canadian Nationals, I was broken away from the field right at the end of the race in third place. Got caught, unfortunately, just a couple hundred meters from the line. So everybody sprinted around me and I think I finished 20th. But it was one of my best performances ever at Canadian Nationals at 39. Mm. Next year was actually one of my, at the age of 40. One of my best years ever on the bike. I think at one point I was ranked top 20 in America. I was getting podiums at, at NRC caliber races. And that was all the diet. It was not no difference in my training. That was diet. During this, I got to know Dr. Cordain. And Dr. Cordain, it's funny, one of the criticisms of the paleo diet is it's not scientific. He is the purest scientist I have ever met to the point that with the website, when I edit his articles, he writes them as a scientific submission. He wrote a book called The Paleo Diet, and they actually, the publishers had to say, make him rewrite the entire book because they went, this is a scientific journal. This is not a book. <laughs> and basically, he was a runner. He was a competitive runner up in Fort Collins and decided he wanted to figure out how to improve his running by eating better and spent 10 years just reading all the research. And after reading all the research, he just said, this is what makes sense. That's how he came to his conclusion. He had no bias. He just wanted to be a better runner. It was also interesting that, so Joe Friel, who wrote one of the most popular uh, cycling training books, The Cyclist Training Bible, um, he had a similar experience to me when uh, he and Dr. Cordain both lived in Fort Collins and knew one another because they were both runners. Uh, Dr. Cordain challenged him to try the paleo diet, and he had the same experience, stopped getting sick as much, his training got better. Uh, so actually, he and Dr. Cordain wrote a book called The Paleo Diet for Athletes. Because there's so many misconceptions about this diet, let's get your definitive definition of what the paleo diet actually is. Yeah, I love this question because people come to me with just all these great misconceptions, and then when I tell them what the diet is, they're like, well, that wasn't what I was told. So it, what it is, is really simple. At its basic level, it's eat lots of healthy vegetables, fruits, lean meats, fish, and some nuts. 
mm-hmm. which is not too far off what you were taught in kindergarten, mm-hmm. which is why I always find it funny that it's such a controversial diet. Because when you say that to people, like, well, that's not a crazy diet. And you go, yeah, that's pretty simple. The reason people take issues with it is we do say that you should not be consuming uh, simple sugars. You should not be eating grains. Uh, you should not be eating dairy, or at least adults should not be de- eating dairy. And we'll say, we also, we always tell everybody, 85%. Mm-hmm. I love pizza. I have my pizza every once in a while. Right. Got to. Um, I think anybody who is overly religious about diet, it, it goes bad places. So, so this is general. This is not never touch this stuff again. Right. I certainly don't follow that rule. And I can attest to your, what do you, you give them a name, these, these like rewards for, for uh, good behavior, you will break your streak and you'll, you'll reward yourself with something that actually doesn't fit with the paleo diet, but you crave. Chris went to a movie with me and I think he was watching me wolf down this giant thing of popcorn when I was watching the it movie. Was, it was disgusting. <laughs> it was, it was, it was gross. When I came on board with Dr. Cordain uh, to do my thesis, I told him, I, I, I have one addendum here. If you tell me I can't have popcorn, I'm out. <laughs> well, you took that to heart, didn't you? I don't have it a lot, but I <laughs> what, enjoy it when I have when it. When you do, you go big. You go big. As I always say, if you're going to kill yourself, don't use a small rope to hang yourself. <laughs> Excellent advice, Trevor. The idea or the philosophy behind this is we should be eating what our bodies evolved to eat. And one thing I have learned after years and years of studying physiology is our bodies are amazingly sophisticated. We have not created machines anywhere close to the sophistication of the human body. And they are actually, our bodies are really good at figuring out what's best for them. And so they figured out how to take advantage of the foods that were available then. Our last major evolutionary change was 10,000 years ago. Last couple changes were blue hair, uh, blonde, sorry, blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, and what's called adult lactase persistence. We really haven't had much change since then. Our diet has changed dramatically, especially in the last 200 years. And a big part of what we eat in a Western diet did not exist 10,000 plus years ago. So basically what we're saying with the diet is our bodies haven't caught up and this is causing a lot of disease, causing a lot of problems, which again, most people in the nutrition community would not argue that the Western diet is unhealthy for you. So what we're saying is we should be eating something that approximates what we used to eat. Kind of simple concepts, but like you said, it's very controversial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there still are a number of controversies. Two big ones, I think, is that the misconception is you'll just eat meat and you can't ever have carbohydrates. And when when most people think of carbohydrates, they, of course, think of bread products, grains. But those are truly misconceptions, correct? Yes. And I will tell you, a lot of what I do in the paleo diet world now is really just addressing misconceptions. It used to be different, but now, especially because it's, the community has grown huge, and there are Lots and lots of people out there who say they are part of the paleo diet community and are pushing a diet that has absolutely nothing to do with the paleo diet. And you are, you are spot on with those controversies. The, the one that's a big misconception about carbohydrates. People seem to use carbohydrates to be synonymous with bread and grain and pasta and grain products. 
even people who don't believe in the, the paleo diet or nutritionists who don't believe in the paleo diet will tell you there are many other good sources of carbohydrates and there are better sources of carbohydrates. Fruits and vegetables. I mean, if you want to simplify foods or you say meat is a protein, bread is a carbohydrate, fruit and vegetables are carbohydrates. And I don't think it's very controversial to say those are better sources of carbohydrates than bread. Why? For two reasons. One is bread is a, a very simple carbohydrate. So we're talking about sugar being unhealthy for you. Uh, one of the reasons is it causes a, a big spike in your insulin. So we have this uh, glycemic index, which is basically a measure of how a food affects your blood sugar and your insulin levels. And the, the standard is glucose. So that, that gets a score of 100. Bread, so simple white bread, also gets a score of 100. Eating white bread is really no simp no different from eating straight sugar. Certainly, there are better types of bread out there. There are new types, not new types of grain, but there's a, yeah. a resurgence of an, in an interest in using more whole, whole grains, obviously, breeds of grain that are more nutrient-dense. Yeah. And so there's a spectrum of good, of, of good and bad when it comes to bread. There is, and why don't we hold off on that? Because we will talk uh, a little bit about my thesis, which was entirely about wheat. Okay. But the, the, the other answer I will give to this is grain products are very low nutrient density. Fruits and vegetables and fruits are very high nutrient density. Mm -hmm. So on top of not having quite the same glycemic index effect, not having some of the, those negative effects, you're also getting a lot more nutrients with them. The other controversy was a, or, or misconception is... Paleo diet is all protein or all meat, which is is ridiculous. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the first papers that Dr. Cordain published talked about the ceiling on protein. We can only g get about 35% of our diet from protein um, or about 200 grams per day. Above that, you you get what's called rabbit starvation, which will kill you. Rabbit? Rabbit. Rabbit. It comes from early explorers who were desperate for food and literally ate nothing but rabbit mm -hmm. and and they emaciated and died um, this was up in canada probably <laughs> probably so no the paleo diet is not all meat it is not all protein and, and, and that's a misconception as a matter of fact uh, by volume if you are eating a healthy paleo diet you are eating a lot more vegetables than you are eating meat and you are getting carbohydrates. A no-carbohydrate diet is what's called a ketogenic diet. There, are, there is some interesting research about it. It has huge anti-cancer properties. But I'm not personally sold on it as, as a lifestyle. And they can come in here, and I'll gladly have this conversation with them, but I will bet a lot of money that Team Sky is not on a ketogenic diet nor ever was on a ketogenic they, they diet. They claim to be. They claim to be, but yeah. you're, you're calling them out. I'm calling them out in the matter, you know, that last nutrition podcast we did when we had Dr. Hawley as a guest, who was one of the top researchers in the world on sports nutrition. He even stated in that podcast, I will get in Team Sky's physiologist. I know him. Mm. And he will tell you they're not on a ketogenic diet. Shall we circle back a bit and talk more about wheat since that was the topic of your, your thesis, your master's thesis? Yeah. And I'm going to apologize ahead of time if I start going down some rabbit holes, because this is where I start talking about interleukins and CD14 and a whole bunch of things that will put you to sleep. So uh, hopefully Chris will slap me across the head a few times and gladly, uh, gladly. And, and stop me. Uh, but I will say, if you are interested, we'll, we'll put up a link 
on the website, I did write a series of five articles that basically summarized my thesis and, and what I found in the research about uh, about wheat. But what I was looking at was the effects of wheat um, and a wheat-free diet on chronic disease, particularly autoimmune disease, and had about 80 subjects in my, my study. We ultimately ended up looking at about eight autoimmune conditions and saw quite dramatic effects in, in several of these conditions when people went on a wheat-free diet. Uh, so our diabetics um, saw a significant improvement. We had eight people with Crohn's disease who all went into remission on, on a wheat-free diet. One of them, I loved it. We, we got all his doctor's records. And his doctor had in the notes, di- uh, patient has decided to try to treat condition with a dietary regimen that I recommended strongly against. Uh, very concerned about where this is going to go. And kind of continues like that. And then over the next three years, he keeps coming back with, with perfect results. And he's going into remission. And all the lesions and polyps are disappearing. And at the end of it, doctor's like, final final note that, that we saw was, seems to be doing very well, correlates strongly with changes in diet. And, and that was uh, you know, quite dramatic. What was the makeup of these 80 individuals in terms of ethnicity and things like that? I'm just curious if you know, some people are, or some genetically predisposed people might be more prone to wheat intolerances and things like that. Yeah. And that's, we don't have question answers about that. Okay. Um, so I can't tell you one particular race um, is more prone than another. What I can tell you, I did, a, I read a lot of the research of a doctor out in Maryland, uh, Aless- I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Alessio Fasano, who, who's absolutely fascinating. And he started by studying celiac disease, but is now actually studying the effects of, of wheat on the gut. And he just, or not just anymore, about five, six years ago, received one of the largest grants ever received in the U.S. to continue his research. And my understanding is right now he is pushing to actually, this might be too strong a term, but have this declared a bit of an, an epidemic. But he has certainly said in, in his research shown that this is a, a pathway to, to multiple conditions. And this is not something just in celiacs, that a, a large number of the population actually at some level or another uh, have these intolerances that can lead to disease. And for example, there was a study that just came out in, in, in 2016 because, you know, again, this is one of those controversial subjects. There's a lot of people out there that say, there's absolutely no research uh, that, that wheat is, is bad for you. And, and all these people are gluten-free or, or just crazy hippies that don't know what they're talking about. And I will tell you, for 10 years, I was one of those people just shaking my head at the people on the gluten-free diets going, I can't stand them. And now I'm somebody who goes in the store. I, I don't really eat wheat products. I've spent years researching this. Tell you, anybody who says there's no research, I will send you about 300 studies. And I still just kind of cringe. I go, I can't believe I'm saying don't eat wheat. So there was actually just a study that I, I wrote an article about this spring that came out in 2016 looking at people who felt they had a wheat intolerance but didn't have celiac disease. And so they, with the more sophisticated ability to test these people that we now have, they, they tested them compared to normal people and found there was a, a much higher degree of intestinal cell damage 
And they definitely saw a much higher degree of immune activation in these people that complained about wheat intolerance. So, you know, when they were saying years or just a couple of years ago, you don't have a wheat intolerance, there's no proof, it, it doesn't affect you, it's all in your head. Well, this is all those people that said it was that they've said it's in, in their heads. And actually, no, there's something there. Basically, the short of my thesis, and let's, I would love to go down this rabbit hole a little bit, but the short of it is wheat is remarkably effective at causing chronic uh, inappropriate inflammation in our systems. Why this is important is the research in chronic disease, whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, um, autoimmune disease, which is what I focused on, uh, in the last five to six years has really shifted towards this discovery that it all starts with chronic inflammation. Uh, so, for example, heart disease, what they discovered is macrophages, which are a key cell uh, in our immune system, basically become a barren. They, they just start essentially misfunctioning, and they bury themselves into the, the cell wall of our, our blood vessels uh, and accumulate there, and, and that's what causes the, these lesions in our, our blood vessels. Autoimmune disease, obviously, is the immune system misfunctioning. Mm -hmm. And cancer is also showing a huge uh, inflammatory process. Like I said, uh, I'll put the link to my articles if, if you really want to dig into this. But the, the short, short, short version. Fasano's research showed that wheat, or particularly uh, gliadin, which is part of gluten in wheat, binds to the, the cells in our gut, and they cause a release of something called zonulin. Zonulin then causes the tight junctions of the cells in our gut to open up. So that's very technical. What this means is all the, the cells lining our gut are very tightly packed together so nothing can get by, so that our digestive system can, can, can kind of reach out and say, okay, this is food, it can come in. This is not food, we're going to excrete this. You need those tight junctions so that things don't get into your system. Wheat affects that. It causes this release of gliadin. That breaks down these tight junctions. And then things that are in our gut can get into circulation that should not get into circulation. And this is a process that's not just in celiacs. This is true in everybody. Dr. Cordain had kind of a gross way of describing it, but he basically said, think about having a cut on your arm taking some feces and rubbing that on your arm. Would that be good for you? Probably not. No, it's not <laughs> what you want. So tell us a bit more about how the gut is involved in the immune system. So to give you an idea, Dr. Fasano, one of his bigger papers was actually titled Zonulin and its Regulation of Intestinal Barrier Function, the Biological Door to Inflammation, Autoimmunity, and Cancer. Primarily, your immune system is located around the gut because you have this gut filled with billions and billions and billions of bacteria, all sorts of things that aren't good if they get into your body. So your immune system sits there and tries to control this bacteria. For the most part, it keeps it in your gut. Every once in a while, when it gains entry, the immune system activates and tries to fight back um, this, these bacteria, these pathogens that have gained entry and prevent them from causing any sort of systemic inflammation or any sort of issue. So opening up those tight junctions and letting all these things in causes a huge load on your immune system. So 
I gave a couple terms before, and I promise, Chris, I won't give too many terms. But one of them was lipopolysaccharide, LPS. LPS is a marker on bacteria, and not the good bacteria, the gram-negative bacteria, the bad bacteria in our, our digestive tract that we don't want to get into circulation. So our immune system is highly tuned to it. Immune cells use what's called C, this marker called CD14 to identify LPS. And when it identifies LPS, it says, okay, bad bacteria is getting into the system. We have a breach. Get the immune system going. Mm. Ramp it up. Let's start fighting this. Most of the time, you know, bacteria is, there's always a little bit of bacteria getting into the system. Most of the time, CD14 is not expressed. So when our immune cells find those bits of bacteria, they go, okay, I'm just going to kill this, not to worry. You have to have a heightened level of bacteria for these cells to start expressing CD14. And when they express CD14, that's when the immune system goes, whoa, okay, let's do something. So the reason I'm explaining that is I read a whole bunch of research that shows that wheat has a way of getting, and I won't go into the mechanism, wheat has a way of getting cells to express CD14 when they shouldn't. So then you, you have this kind of combined effect of opening up the tight junctions of the gut, which is letting the LPS in. Meanwhile, you have immune cells now expressing CD14 when they really shouldn't. That CD14 is binding to the LPS. And the immune system is going, do something. Let's respond. Mm. Um, the primary cell to respond to this, to this sort of bacterial invasion is something called Th17. It's a, a T cell, part of our adaptive immune system. We don't really want our bodies expressing Th17 very often because it's a very destructive cell. Every single autoimmune disease, Th17 is part of the early mechanism. Th17 is associated early on with cancer. It is associated with most of our chronic diseases. And so wheat is remarkably effective at getting our body to have a inappropriate inflammatory response that, that gets Th17 expressed. We don't want this. So is that the only way that wheat affects inflammation? Um, so they used to, in autoimmune disease, there was this, uh, what was called the molecular mimicry theory that they believed a virus came in, mimicked your, your body's own epitopes, which is what your immune system identifies, but basically mimics your own body. Your immune system responds to that, it kills the virus, and then it continues to kill anything that looks like the virus, which is unfortunately you. Wheat has this other effect that's really interesting. It's a reverse mimicry. Wheat mimics bacterial invasion. And there, there's a purpose of this. Think about it. All life wants to be able to protect itself. Animals can do it by fighting off invaders. Some plants do it by having thorns. A lot of your grains do it by having chemicals or properties in them that harm you. So that when you eat one of these grains or one of these plants, you will get very sick and then say, okay, I'm not going to eat that again. If you go out in the wheat field and eat raw wheat, it's going to be a really unpleasant experience for you. You're going to get very sick. Most of this stuff is cooked out, but not all of it. And that is one of the debates, whether it's cooked out or not. But I can show you a lot of research showing that um, enough remains and this stuff is so potent that it still has these effects. You don't get really sick, but over a long period of time, that's why celiacs get sick. And so the ones that we're talking about, um, in particular in wheat, are what are called lectins. 
Um, and that's and the lectins in wheat mostly exist in the uh, in the gluten. We also have something in wheat called WGA, wheat germ agglutinin, which is amazingly good at just passing actually right through the cells. It doesn't need opening up of the tight junctions. It can go right through the cells. It's a heterodimer. It can bind to 10 different molecules, so it can bring things in with it. And they've shown it binds to what's called the basolateral side of the epithelial cells. That's the side inside your body, not the side facing your gut, um, and can activate the immune system. The immune cells in your innate system that basically give the signal to the T cells of get in here, do something, or no, don't worry, man, we, we got it under control, are your dendritic cells. They actually have these arms that can reach into your gut and just constantly sample what's in there. Um, and again, it's whether they're expressing CD14 or not, um, as I remember. There is something in wheat called amylase trypsin inhibitors, ATIs. We have unfortunately bred more and more ATIs into wheat because they're a great insecticide or pesticide. The problem is they activate the dendritic cells. They, tell, they, they flip that switch in the dendritic cells that say, okay, activate the immune system, get in here, express the CD14, TH17, get in here, we got to do something. And I have read several studies showing with the consumption of wheat, you see this highly inflammatory profile. You see the expression of TH17 as the ultimate result. And you see a downregulation of all the things that try to tell the immune system, stay local, stay calm. And wheat seems to have this ability that I haven't seen in any other grain products to just so there's multiple different ways to cause this heightened inflammation. So you need the opening up the tight junctions in the gut. You need this kind of bacterial mimicry. You need this ability to upregulate the T7, TH17, downregulate Treg, get the innate immune system um, activated. I've seen other foods and lectins that can cause some of these effects. Wheat's the only one that has all the products to just hit all mm -hmm. sides uh, of this elevated inflammation that I haven't seen personally anywhere else. Uh, maybe some other researchers have. My focus was on wheat. But after reading this and seeing all the different products it has, the WGA, the amylase trypsin inhibitors, the, the gliadin, and the way they can just absolutely it just do have this effect on your immune system was, was quite stunning. So we've been eating wheat for a long time. So why are we seeing this problem now? The other thing to remember, particularly with wheat, is our ability to process wheat on a mass scale didn't start until there were some big improvements in, in the stone grinding process um, in the, I think it was the 1860s. So I always say, you know, the, the poor man's food is bread. Well, actually, not really the case. You go earlier in history, bread was a bit of a, a, bit of a luxury. Um, and I remember talking to my grandmother when I got on the, the paleo diet. She went, you're eating that really crazy diet. I went, Grandma, what did you eat when you were a kid? Well, we didn't have a lot of money, so we had fruit. We grew our own vegetables. You know, she'd mentioned meat a bit, and she's like, kind of, that's all we ate when Grandma's paleo diet. So, Chris, who do you think is going to live longer? Us or those Cat 3s over at the Vela News podcast? Ooh, very good question. I'm hoping it's me. I'm no. hoping it's you. <laughs> it's definitely going to be us. They're cat threes. 
they're they're gonna bike in front of a bus or something worrying about the, whether they're wearing the right clubs <laughs> hey it doesn't matter though because any healthy cyclist or runner fast talk listener can go to healthiq.com slash fast talk and get a free quote on life insurance from Health IQ. It's a company that specializes in healthy, active people. While you're there, submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or MapMyRun account. Whether you're a Cat 3, a Cat 1, a triathlete, whatever you are. Or Fred and Spencer. Or Fred and Spencer. And get a better quote. It begs the question, in my mind, someone who loves bread, mm-hmm. loves pizza, loves things that are made with wheat products, am I setting myself up for disaster? I feel fine. What would happen? Well, I assume your answer is to the question, what would happen if I go off of wheat? You would th- assume or say my performance would improve. I would feel better. But what if I feel fine right now? So this is one of the arguments people give all the time. And this is, you know, doctors deal with this all the time where somebody comes into the doctor's office and goes, I feel fine. What's your definition of fine? And do we really feel fine? And I actually just had to write an article responding to Bill Nye, the science guy, who attacked the paleo diet saying, everybody died at 35 in paleolithic times. Why would we want to eat their diet? (laughs) That's completely wrong. Totally wrong. Average age of mortality was 35, but that's because a large number of the population died before the age of two. When you look at the average age of mortality, or you look at the, the median age of, of mortality, after with people that survived past the age of two, it's the same as now. But I started studying some of the, these uh, reports of hunter-gatherer societies, and you look at how they aged, and it was entirely different from how we age. Their 80-year-olds were still active, still hunting. You look at pictures of them, I would be happy in my 40s to look like the 80-year-olds looked like in these hunter-gatherer societies. Our natural aging process, there's a very strong argument, is not a natural aging process. What we think of as fine, it might be what we've always felt, but it might not actually be fine. Mm. And I said the same thing. You know, and I hated all these people who are going gluten-free diets. I was sitting there going... Well, I eat tons of it, and, and I'm in you know, my late 30s, and, and I'm still racing in pro races, so I'm obviously fine. Yet I was getting sick all the time, and I eventually had to quit. Then I got off of wheat, and suddenly at the age of 40, I'm having one of my best seasons in my life. This, this is a subject we could talk all day about, and I think listeners out there will have a lot of other questions, and I encourage you to send them in, and uh, perhaps we are able to answer them on another podcast in some way. But let's let's take a broader view and help people understand what nutritional advice you would give them based based on these these admitted biases of yours and help people get faster. Absolutely. And I will say, you know, th- thanks for bearing with us. Um, if I'm going to talk about nutrition in the future, I wanted to give you my bias and my background. I will put up, like I said, a link to that series of articles I wrote that, that explain the, the processes with wheat in much more detail. I always put up references. I will put up my thesis references. So be prepared. It's going to be about 150 studies. Uh, but yeah, so from this point forward, I'm going to say, obviously, my bias affects my recommendations. 
But the recommendations I'm going to give about nutrition from this point forward, I'm going to try to go a little broader. This is just simply what I feel that the science says. I'm not going to ever try to push the paleo diet on anybody. You know, I will say if anybody ever comes to me and says I want to try it, I'm happy to help them. Now that we've clarified what you mean by sugar in a performance sense versus a lifestyle sense, we've gone into the paleo diet, we've gone into your biases, we've gone into your work on wheat and chronic disease. Let's step back from that and give some broader suggestions to athletes out there looking for nutrition advice for performance and health. Because there's a there's a balance there. I know we're going to touch upon that balance. There's a balance that needs to be struck between health and performance. It's not always been the case. At a, years ago, nutrition in in athletics was way more skewed towards performance. People are understanding health and performance need to be balanced. So let's let's dive into that. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there. I mean, I think you talk to any. Uh, top-level professional cyclists from, from 10 years ago, they'll be the first to say, no, my diet wasn't healthy. I love the story of, of Tyler Hamilton, who used to go out for those rides where he would eat nothing, get home, be absolutely starving, take a sleeping pill so he could sleep through the hunger. Frightening. Then, yeah, Frightening. Nobody's going to tell you that's a healthy approach to living. Why don't we start with, this is one of my biggest you, know, you call it pet peeves or, or soapboxes or whatever. But I am a big believer in focus on foods, not ratios. Meaning I think the, the nutrition world is dramatically over-focused on should we be high carbohydrate, low carbohydrate, high protein, low protein, high fat, low fat. I, I think that's a crazy way to talk about diet because I don't think that relates to health. And I, I personally get frustrated with all these science studies that go, uh, that, that have titles along those lines of, of high-carbohydrate diet proves to be healthier for X. I have people all the time to me because I'm associated with the, the paleo diet and they think it's an all-protein diet, throw research in my face um, saying, here, here's a study showing that a high-protein diet is bad for you. And I kind of have a canned response to them because most of these studies you look at, if you go into the methodology, you discover that, well, these people on a high-protein diet were eating McDonald's. <laughs> and hamburgers and crap and hot dogs. So I go, well, great. Kind of thanks for opening my eyes. You're, you know, you, you must be right. You know, high protein diets are bad for you. And, you know, so you, you've also shown me that broccoli is bad for you. you go, no, I didn't. That, that's crazy. And I go, well, broccoli is a carbohydrate, right? Well, yeah. Skittles are a carbohydrate, right? Yeah. Well, then broccoli is bad for you. <laughs> well, that's crazy. You can't make a, a, a comparison between skittles and 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 broccoli and i go well you just did the same thing with protein because you look at the people in this study they're eating mcdonald's you're not showing me a study with a healthy protein yet you're using the study to uh, make assumptions about all proteins and that's my point you can have a high carbohydrate diet that's based on vegetables and fruit that's a healthy diet you can have a high carbohydrate diet that's based on skittles that's not a healthy diet same thing with protein same thing with fat so you need to look at what are the foods that i'm eating and whenever anybody asks me about the paleo diet, what is our macronutrient ratios are, I go, we don't have one. We focus on the foods that you should eat and you shouldn't eat. And out, even outside the paleo diet, I think a lot of nutritionists are going to agree with this, that it, it, you should be focusing on the particular foods, not some percentage. 
I will say I, I interviewed some, a, a critic of our diet, and her criticism of the diet was the paleo diet doesn't have a macronutrient ratio, so you can't be compared to other diets. That's my issue with the paleo diet. <laughs> yeah, that's minor in comparison to uh, other criticisms you could have. Yeah, but it was interesting. She was so focused on nutrient ratio. She basically said, I can't understand your diet until you tell me what your nutrient ratio is. But again, to, to avoid going down that rabbit hole, pay attention to the foods you're eating. Even if you want to eat high carbohydrate, um, and I do eat a higher carbohydrate diet when I'm training hard and racing hard. Not all carbohydrates are created equal. Right. So what are the carbohydrate sources? And I will tell you, I get mine. When I'm on the bike, yeah, I have my Swedish fish. I have my sports drinks. When I am off the bike, I am eating a lot of vegetables. I'm eating fruit. The, the closest thing to candy I will sometimes eat is, is dried mango. Or sorry, dried apricots, not mango. What's, what's, what's your thing with mangoes? Again, going back to the glycemic index, dried uh, mangoes are very high on the list. Dried apricots are the lowest on the list of all the dried fruits. Of course, I was joking, and you have a, a good response for that. Thank Trevor, you. Trevor, Trevor. What's next on our list of suggestions that you have for uh, athletes out there? So this is probably my biggest one. And frankly, if somebody was going to come to me and said, in one minute, give me your, your dietary advice, it's going to be eat high nutrient density. And I've had this theory for a long time, that when people talk about having unsatiable hunger, I, I have noticed this correlation of those people tend to eat very low nutrient density foods, i.e. most of the processed foods that you find in supermarkets. I believe that hunger is not an on-off switch. We usually are craving something. And for the most part, are really bad at understanding what our body is craving. So you get hungry, your body might be saying, I need more B vitamins or I need more X. And all you do is feel hungry. So you go and wolf down a bag of chips. It's a thousand calories. Your body goes, thanks. I'll store that as fat, but you still didn't give me what I need. So I'm not turning off the hunger signals. Uh, again, part of my theory is... Uh, I don't like it when, when I hear guys criticize pregnant women for some of their crazy cravings because I don't think they're crazy. Women can become very deficient in particular nutrients because the child that they're growing gets priority. And they've actually done studies where they, they look at these cravings they have, like sometimes they want to eat chalk, which sounds crazy. Well, chalk is very high in calcium. Hmm. Um, so they're craving something that's usually very high in a nutrient. This goes back to your, your point that the human body is very, very sophisticated and yes. and it it's sending us signals of what it needs we just need to listen to that we need to learn how to listen and i had a, a personal experience with this where i was doing a training camp and i was really suffering in this training camp not hanging on very well and for some reason you know i had you know i have a sweet tooth when i ride obviously that's pretty clear i didn't want sugar we'd stop at the stores during our rides and i kid you not i'd start buying beef jerky and turkey jerky and I couldn't get enough eggs. And it just seemed very all, all very strange. Couldn't figure it out. Talked to one of my nutrition professors about it. And he couldn't figure it out either until I got cracks at the corners of my mouth. And we looked that up. And I'm probably going to get this wrong. I get all my B vitamins mixed up. Um, but I think that's a riboflavin deficiency. Hmm. And sure enough, the foods that I was craving were very high in riboflavin. Interesting. So I have given hundreds of people this advice when they tell me they have a hard time keeping weight down, they have a hard time with, with energy, with, with the food cravings, I go, eat high nutrient density foods. And 
I don't think I've ever had somebody not come back to me and say, it's amazing. I'm eating less. I'm less hungry. Do you have a, a short list of those foods that are your go-to nutrient-dense foods? So, yeah, I, I remember having this conversation with Dr. Cordain, who is a consummate scientist. So he just kind of holed himself up, did an analysis of all the foods out there and came up with a list of what's most nutrient-dense to least nutrient-dense foods and broke it into categories in order. Highest nutrient density, seafood. Uh, second highest, veggies, though there is some arguments that you can make that veggies are higher. But those are your two top. Then it goes fruits, lean meats, eggs, legumes, starchy roots, whole milk. Now we are second bottom from the, uh, the list. Whole grains. So not even processed grains, whole grains. Uh, and then bottom of the list is nuts and seeds. Hmm. Nuts and seeds actually have some very important nutrients that are hard to get other ways. The problem is uh, when we're talking about nutrient density, we're talking about relative to 100 calories. And nuts are very high calorie food. Hmm. So they're still nutrient poor relative to the, the, the calories. I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that are thinking, well, I consume a lot of calories, but yet I'm always hungry. Would a more nutrient-dense diet help with that? If you are giving your body the nutrients it needs, those, those hunger signals are going to shut off. I actually find this, uh, I, I still get amazed by this myself because when I'm eating healthy and nutrient-dense, I'm never really that hungry. If I let my diet slip or I'm going and visiting my grandma and you eat whatever your grandma feeds you, uh, which is generally not the healthiest food, mm. all of a sudden I'm starving all the time. And I'm eating twice as many calories in the day. My belief is people that are consuming huge amounts of foods and saying they're always hungry, I point back to this. They are generally eating extraordinarily low nutrient density diets and, and could help satiate some of that hunger by eating higher quality foods. And I will sure get some people absolutely furious with me for saying that. You know, nothing wrong with being a little bit hungry. In the nutrition world, there is a, a theory called the thrifty gene a hypothesis, which, you know, just like everything, there is some controversy, but this one not too much, which is, and the idea is until very, very recently, we always lived in a state of low caloric availability. It was very hard for ex anybody except the wealthiest to eat a lot of food. So our bodies were designed to crave food, weren't really designed to uh, want to stop eating because when you had food available, you don't know. It could be days before mm -hmm. you eat again. So you really want to eat as much as you can. So we are kind of designed to always be a little bit hungry. Opportunistic right. in that sense. And I will say eating until you're full is a mistake. I mean, Thanksgiving, fine, go for it. <laughs> Any other time, you should never eat till you're full because that's not your body saying, I got enough. Because your body doesn't really ever want to say, I got enough. That's your body saying, whoa, slow down. This is way too much. Mm -hmm. So eat until you're satiated, but still a little hungry. That's a, that's a, I think that's a hard one to explain. It is a field especially, thing. It, especially for those people that for years and years and years have eaten until they're full. And it's, yeah. it's, a, bat, it's a, a habit they have to back away from a bit. And it's tough. It's tough when you're not used to it. So you know, whenever I am dropping weight, 
uh, for performance. So I have a race coming up. There's a lot of climbing. I want to get my weight down or I've been bad and I let my weight get a little too high. I go through a week of under eating that is miserable. And you sit there at night just staring at your cabinets going, I want food. And this is not the week just prior to the race. No, never the week <laughs> just prior to the race. Right. But if you can get through that week, I go, you go into this mode, and I've had a lot of people describe it to me, where you actually like that feeling of being a little bit hungry. It almost, for lack of a better word, it just kind of feels healthy. And you don't want to overeat. And then all of a sudden, taking the weight off is easy. Or getting down to a good healthy weight is easy. Getting below a good healthy weight is hard and not something you should do anyway. Right, right. When you when you talk about athletes, there's their on-bike life, there's their off-bike life. And those are two different worlds. And I think it goes back to the original topic of sugar. Sugar on the bike is something your body needs for performance. You give it that, it responds. That's a good thing. If you carry that diet over and just eat sugars, Swedish fish in your case, all day long, very bad thing. So let's get into that on-bike versus off-bike diet. So that, and we did touch on that in that previous podcast, and this is a really important thing. Our bodies respond differently to nutrition when we are exercising than they do when we are not exercising. And you really need to make that distinction and understand it. One of the biggest ones is that insulin response. So we were talking about the glycemic index. The insulin response shuts down when we are exercising. And our cells can actually directly take up sugar without needing insulin. So a lot, not all of the negative side effects of sugar, but a lot of the negative side effects of sugar essentially shut down when you are exercising. Also, there's a lot of research showing that exercise, you are burning a lot of calories. This is a big strain on your body. And if you are under fueling when you are exercising, you will fatigue faster. It affects your immune system. It can push you towards burnout. There are a lot of actually negative effects of not consuming those carbohydrates when you are exercising. So you actually need to get them in. And one of the things I coach my athletes on is when they are having nutrition problems, when they are problem, having problems getting their weight down, is you need to eat more when you ride. Because if you don't, if you underconsume when you ride, your body's screaming after the ride because it needs to recover. It's screaming for fuels. And I get these athletes that go, I'm going to undereat when I ride and I'm going to drop weight. Then they get home, then they're starving and they don't even see it. And they wolf down 2,000 calories and they've actually overeaten on that day. Right. Where if they keep eating on the ride, you get to the end, the recovery is better, you feel better, and then they don't overconsume. But outside of the ride, and so there's what's called the glycemic window, that, that shutting down of the insulin response and the, your muscle cells ability to really take up the sugars rapidly sticks with you for about an hour after exercise. So obviously it's much better five minutes after exercise than an hour. So you still want to get those simple sugars um, into your system and help refuel the cells right after exercise. Once you're outside of that hour, that's when you, you go back to, I'm trying to eat healthy. Mm -hmm. That's when you should be avoiding the simple sugars. You know, unfortunately, when Gatorade came out, everyone, well, this is great sports drink, so I'm going to drink it at the office. I'm going to drink it with dinner. No, drink it when you exercise. Great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't drink it other times. Outside of exercise is when you go back to eat vegetables, lots and lots of vegetables, eat some fruit, eat your lean meats, 
you know, if you're, you're vegetarian, make sure you're getting your high protein vegetables. I actually really admire people that are, are vegans or vegetarians when they do it for humanitarian or sustainability reasons. Again, that's with the human population. That's the only way that we're going to sustain the population. But there are health concerns there. And one of them is you can't get B12 uh, naturally being a, a, a vegan. You can't get the right form of B6 and it's hard to get enough folate. So anybody who is doing a vegetarian or especially a vegan diet, you need to be supplementing with those because those are the nutrients that you, you unfortunately can generally only get through animal sources. That affects something called our folic acid cycle and the levels of, of homocysteine in your body. They've pretty much thrown out the whole idea that high cholesterol leads to heart disease, but there's a high correlation of homocysteine with heart disease. And if you're not getting enough B12 and B6 and folate, you're going to overproduce homocysteine and it can lead to heart disease. You know where the highest rates of heart disease are in the world? Not the U.S., it's India. There are a lot of, of people who are essentially vegan in, in India and don't know to make sure they're getting their B12 and their B6. But outside of exercise, that's when you want to eat a focus on that healthy, nutrient-dense diet, avoiding the, the simple sugars. And for all those people who are saying, well, I need to recover, I need to refuel, there's been a lot of research coming out showing that you know, all these nutritional strategies for replenishing glycogen and refueling are bogus. There was actually one study where they compared the what's considered the, the perfect endurance sport meal for replenishing glycogen, which is the big carbohydrate meal and all that, uh, to fast food and discovered they were just as good. So not promoting fast food, more of what I'm saying is don't think I have to have the big pasta for the race tomorrow. If you got sufficient carbohydrates during your ride, just eat healthy. You're actually going to be in a better place. Mm -hmm. Which again brings us back to that balance that is thankfully on the forefront of nutrition this, these days, which is that balancing health and performance is, is tricky, but it's going to be the most effective way to make you the best athlete you can be. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes that athletes made 10, 15 years ago was I have to just eat for performance. And I wouldn't be surprised that that's part of what drove some of them to doping because they couldn't keep up with the training because they weren't fueling themselves. And I do believe there are, there are clean riders now who are performing at at least very close to that level that they used to perform at because they are eating better. And I've seen the, the dietary plans of some of the pro tour teams and they are eating much better. And I will tell you, they aren't having their big pasta parties. Mm -hmm. Don't think that these pro tour teams at the end of every stage of the tour are going and wolfing down two pounds of pasta. That's actually not the case, well, at least the teams that I saw. Right. Well, this is a fascinating subject. It's at times controversial. It's very, very personal. Everybody has their foods that they love, foods that they won't give up, even Trevor with his giant, giant buckets of popcorn every now and again. Please be kind when you... Uh, send in emails and letters to Trevor. He, again, isn't trying to push this diet, his particular uh, persuasions onto you. Hopefully, all of these recommendations are helpful to make you a better athlete. All right, folks, that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we'd love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling.
Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thank you.